Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. My name's Shay Ryan Douglas. I'm from Earth Heroes TV, a conscious media platform. It's our mission to bring you inspiring stories from really interesting people who are in our local community here on the Sunshine Coast. And today, it's a very exciting day. Not only have I got an amazing guest, man who's uh, very active in the community, but we're here at the local library and uh, new studio space. So this is really cool. We're using the new Rode pod mics, high quality podcast production, thanks to our local community. And um, before coming into this podcast interview with this gentleman who I'm going to reveal in just a moment, I was outside um, pondering and walking through the little community garden out there, beautiful community garden, lots of flowers growing, a lot of lettuces and herbs and just a beautiful space I was walking through. They've got chickens out the back and a big compost. And I was kind of reflecting on some of the questions that I'm going to ask this gentleman as I was walking through this garden. And the relevance of this is that I've come to become very fond of this man because of the connection that we have over somewhat gardening, but not the conventional gardening that you will be thinking of. And it's more gardening of our internal landscape as well as the external landscape through non-conventional methods of permaculture but the relationship with this man goes a little bit deeper than just talking about gardening because we've had some really in-depth conversations around men's health around uh, alcoholism around drug use and also around relationships with partners Um, We've also had many other conversations around property as well. We might not get into that last topic today, but the intention of this conversation is mostly to explore avenues through human stories of personal development and and, uh, self-improvement, which is something that I've seen this gentleman uh, do throughout his life and we've had some great chats. So I just wanted to introduce... Mr. Wayne Tomset, is that correct? That's it, yeah. Tomset. Um, Wayne, where did we first meet each, meet each other? We first met each other at Whitford Folk Festival. One of my favourite festivals. One of mine too. Um, yeah, you were friends with my partner prior to me meeting her and who I met at um, Whitford Folk Festival as well, volunteering. And, um, yeah, she's now my wife. Yeah, I love that. It's a really beautiful story, actually. And what I what I notice and the key emphasis that I want to look at, particularly with your story and what you've been doing recently, is we were both volunteering. And that's something I see in you is this service-orientated life that you live. Um, being in your later years and having spent much of your life... Not kind too much of later. ...running around <laughs> the track. <laughs> Still plenty of years in you yet. Yeah, yeah. A lot of youth. But, um, you know, like the modern, the modern man kind of finds himself often, particularly when young, enthusiastic, uh, you know, on this hunt and this desire, somewhat of a race, rat race sometimes people call it, but really ambitious and kind of seeking some sense of uh, approval perhaps or, you know, finding themselves searching for something more, some meaning in life they want to contribute and... As a uh, young sportsman, as an athlete, um, as a jockey, 
what's kind of your experience in your younger years with this? Because I, I know now that you ha- might have a different perspective in your mindset and the way that you serve the community, which you do so regularly. Um, and if, obviously we met at Woodford, but there's many other festivals and gatherings that you might have met Wayne or ran into Wayne and witnessed him volunteering his time and his energy um, through service at the likes of PranaFest, setting up the festivals and the signs, or even at the likes of Grounded, where he's often in the kitchen or setting up, helping, tinkering and getting things organised, or even at a local conscious movie night, helping serve food. So we'll get to today, but I want to go back through the years a little bit and explore when you were younger and you were, you know, in this mindset of achieving and had a drive for success. Um, tell us a little bit about your journey as a jockey and kind of where you were at in terms of your development of um, perhaps, you know, sh- striving for some success, which is, I believe, ingrained in all of us as young men that we really want to be successful in some area of life. Um, but w- what was that kind of journey like for you? Uh Really, I left school, the schooling system, which was some of the worst years of my life, um, without any hopes, dreams or aspirations. Um, I was always good with animals. And so, you know, the universe plonked um, a job in front of me working with horses. Um, And that started out just being a groom, uh, you know, a stable hand. And then, because I left school, I was, you know, like 43 kilos when I left school high school and um, so finally my my lack of height and weight came to something useful and um, yeah I grew up around hospitality as well and a lot of the old punters would say oh you should be a jockey son you should be a jockey so it was sort of implanted in the back of my mind that that's kind of where I'll go and uh, I grew up in hospitality so in kitchens and around bars and clubs and pubs and all that sort of thing. And so, you know, that element was always there. Or that little, you know, that the odd comment would steer me that way. And basically when I left school, I found a job at the CES for a stable hand and I, I went for that in Brisbane. So I left home when I was, I was 16 and went and worked in stables, you know, picking up after horses. And that's where it started for me. And... I hadn't really ever ridden a horse before. Um, once or twi- twice in somebody's paddock or something, you know, at a barbecue or something, somebody would have a horse. And so um, I'd never, you know, the, the funny experience that I've had after I went through a bit of the grind and the first time I, I, <laughs> I rode a horse and I was on the quietest horse and its name was actually Fun Gold and I ended up at Bruce McLaughlin's place, which is out near Caboolture, and he had a private training establishment. And they put me on this horse and we're sort of trotting away and I'm bouncing up and down and then we get into a, a, a light canter and we're going a little bit quicker and the foreman was on a pony. And so he's riding through the little drains and everything beside me and he says, pull up, pull up. I said, how do you do that? He says, pull back. And that was my introduction on riding horses. And, you know, I, I was really passionate about just being the best I could be, you know, and I watched and I learned and even... From the time, from when I gave it up, when I stopped doing it, stopped riding and working with horses, up till that day, I was still trying to improve 
my style and how I rode and my knowledge and and really implant the gifts that the horses give me as far as, you know, learning how they appreciated being treated. And, and that, that goes across. What I also found, having been a parent, is that um, knowledge has gone across my life in, in, you know, really learning how to be kind because I wasn't at the start, you know, and the industry when I hopped into it, it wasn't kind at the start, <clears throat> you know, that... The, the idea of natural horsemanship and, and horse whisperers, you know, that, that came through later on and, um, you know, it wasn't really talked about. It was quite rough and tough and horses were, were meant to do things and, you know, I learnt through trial and error how to, to treat horses well and get the response I wanted through actually using different breathing techniques, meditation, um, you know, I, I could drop feelings into horses and... Um, you know, horses always, they didn't, I treated horses as if they understood me and they did. They didn't know that I couldn't read everything they were saying back. So I acted as, as if and they didn't know any better. And so, you know, I I used those t- techniques that I learnt off them and, and out in the real world through trial and error, you know, using meditation, breath, breath is a big one and, um, you know, it, it transmitted into my my whole life, and and those years was were very, you know, um, very difficult for me as far as dealing with human beings, mm. and so for the the longest time, they were my saviour in the world. You know, they were all I had. And how many years total was it that you were working with horses? Well, I worked with horses for twenty years in all aspects of the industry as well. So I, I was a clerk of the course. So I, I worked on barriers, um, but always trying to be, um, you know, more than um, I was today. You know, mm-hmm. trying to always improve, and you know, I didn't get the success I would have liked to have. But gradually, I got heavier as well. You know, the the cruel twist of fate, you know, and, um, you know, I I started growing quite late and so by the time I'd actually got in the saddle to be saddled up to go into races, um, I'd put on like an extra two kilos too much, you know, and I, I'd kind of exploded a little bit and then it was like 15 years of not eating and dieting and that in itself is a beautiful, uh, you know, a perfect storm for, for, you know, deteriorating mental health. Mm. And so that's part of my story as well. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm curious to go into that actually because, sure. I mean, as a – you become pretty much a professional athlete in some sense Absolutely, to yeah. ride horses. Yeah. You know, you're talking about the diet, the lifestyle, the training, the yeah. regiment, the routine, getting up early, working with the horses and um, kind of what impact – that have on your mental health because uh, as you were focusing on your physical health you were saying how did you know over the course of that career um what was what was challenging and kind of what how did that kind of uh, manifest in into your life well you know I, I left school um super low health self-esteem you know and um really bad self-image you know i really didn't like who i was looking at most of the time and um you know, that, you know, when I, and, and for a short period of time, I was very successful. You know, I had my picture in all the papers in all around Australia. You know, I, um, 
at different times. As an apprentice, I was the go-to guy. I had, you know, a better than, I think it was 50% strike rates, rides to winners and rides to placings. I was up near 80% um, at the time, which was which was in line with the best riders as an apprentice. I was an apprentice, but in line with the best riders in Brisbane um, at the time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was that was very good, but slowly I was getting heavier and heavier. And slowly along the way, you know, with, with you know, crash dieting and basically I dieted for 15 years. <laughs> like, um, you know, I dieted on my honeymoon you know, because I had to come back and, and earn a living when I, I – so there was no – for that for that period of time, um, you know, there was no Christmases, there was no, no real birthdays because no of parties. No, well, there, well, there was plenty of drinking, and and that's <laughs> okay. another part of my story as well. Yeah, you know, um, you can't, you, you can, you know, um, yeah. So then, al- along with that came a lot of prescribed medications okay. that I also used to remove weight from my body. And that was fluid tablets, using diuretics. Um, yeah, and it's just a constant thing. And then, you know, the thing you see in the Rocky movies with the guy wearing all the sweat coats and losing weight for the fight to get down the right... Well, that was my daily exercise. Mm. You know, in the middle of summer at the Gold Coast, I'd be riding in a wetsuit covered by a, a diver's <laughs> suit and then a plastic suit, a diver's lycra suit, and then a plastic suit over the top and then a winter jacket. And that was my every day. And I was supposed to stay calm, cool and collected on a, on a raging animal at different times. And so, which I, I, I did quite well. Like I, at the time, I was probably one of the better track riders at the Gold Coast. You know, there were certain horses that nobody else could ride but me because of the techniques that I'd learnt from some cranky old men in, in stables growing up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, as you're speaking, I'm reflecting on my journey as a, you know, semi-professional athlete playing sports and having somewhat, you know, similar story of some success, but that was never really kind of attainable long-term. And when I started to just reflect on the downturn, when I started getting injured and I started, you know, getting out of shape and I was um, really struggling, I wasn't didn't have quite the same awareness back then as a young adult and my life began to kind of take a turn where I was going out more, I was drinking more, I was eating more unhealthy foods, I was kind of skipping my rehabilitation practice and it kind of took a bit of a, a turn for the negative and I, I didn't really quite understand, you know, the impacts of having a stable uh, mental health kind of perspective on life. What, were, what was your journey with that, like in terms of your the, the challenges? What was the most difficult thing in your journey, particularly with the horse stables and how that turned into what we're going to go into in a moment um, around, you know, the growing up in pubs and, and, and clubs, as, as did I, working in bars and whatnot? How did that impact your, your career but also in your life? Yeah, um so with, with the drinking, you know, it, it, I grew up amount, uh, amongst it, you know, and, and in reflection also, you know, I realised that, you know, the people I idolised as a kid, you know, were the, were the guys in the Morton Bay Hotel who were, you know, full of merchant seamen and whatever else. And I was a little kid and little, you know, little sh- short shorts running around and, you know, at, at closing time and, and stuff. And, and I'd see these guys and they get in, in 
and that you know that I was attracted to the guy making the most noise. You know, he was getting the most attention, and and you know he was the guy I wanted to be like. Yeah, and you know, and those guys also would go outside, have a knuckle up, sort something out, come back, bit of blood coming off them and pat you on the head, give you a packet of chips and some orange juice and say, you're a good boy, you know. And, and so that was never dangerous to me, you know. And um, if we got onto a story about father, I've got to tell you about a conversation I had with my daughter about that exact same thing. But, um, yeah, so that was, that was, there was no questioning. And I, I grew up around, uh, you know, an immigrant family. My, my grandparents were five-pound poms. And so, and then my father was ten year old when he came out here, and so they had a, a drinking culture, you know. They would always have parties and and the likes, and so, um, and it always uh, the alcohol also, also made me better than what I felt, you know. It, it always it gave me that confidence to dance. It gave me that, you know, the the boost that my my ego sorely needed from having low self esteem, and and you know I could drink the biggest guy in the bar under the table and they gave me a bit of, you know, kudos, if you like, you know. And um, so eventually, and which we'll probably get to, the benefits or, or you know, the, um, the um, not the benefits, the... Um, Maybe the purpose? No, the, um, you know, the, the negatives... Started to outweigh the benefits, you know, oh, over in, the drinking. in the drinking yeah, over yeah, a period yeah. of time. But and it, like reflecting back, and and as much as hard as I tried to work to lose weight, um, the relief was there, you know, on the Saturday night going out drinking, and I'd wake up eight kilos heavier than when I went to bed, or you know, from my riding weight that day, and then I would start again, and it was just this cycle of constantly losing weight and then taking. You know, which were, you know, I could tell a good story to a, a doctor and, and I'd get the pills I wanted, uh, mostly, mainly uh, Lasix, which was a diuretic. And they, they've, uh, at that time, I remember uh, he, he owned the Swans Football Club. Alan Jones came out and there was, you know, the, the incidence of depression in jockeys was twice the national average. So, so jockeys suffered twice as much as most other people. You know, and, I, and, you know, by the time I got to about 35, I already knew five people had killed themselves. You know, it's a very difficult industry to be in um, and you're only as good as your last ride. You know, you're very quickly thrown away, which I learnt, um, you know, also later on and, and that identity crisis that comes from which you would have experienced. One day you're the soccer legend and next minute it's like, what do I do now? And it's taken away from you. And I experienced it. And that that transition into normal life, you know, from being, you know, around millionaires and super wealthy people and being, you know, the, the guy at the head of the table to no longer being valued in that way. Mm. You know, other skills were valued, but, you know, the, the money stream stops, the, so everything changes mm. and... Um, I ended up at like, I think when I first when I gave it away the first time, it's like, well, who am I now? And I, I didn't find that till many years later, after a lot of, you know, alcohol abuse and and just really being lost and aimless. And yeah, so my story in a different place 
continues from there, which I'm sure you'll take us to. But yeah, no, I'm not sure I answered the question that you asked. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> no, it, um, um, it's really interesting to see the parallels, you know, in our story, particularly yeah. like looking back at the role of alcohol in uh, our lineage, let's say, like com- also coming from a, uh, you know, European background, Northern Irish father and uh, an English mother, definitely lots of drinking culture and I was working in an English bar and it seems, you know, in a short term alcohol can serve a function that's positive such as the confidence, you know, the ego boost and all the rest of it but like you said, long term it can be quite detrimental uh, particularly if it's, you know, continued and and on a consistent basis becomes a bit of a, you know, negative spiralling cycle that can leave you down to what some people might refer to as a kind of a pit moment mm-hmm. of um, suffering, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Especially after an, a crisis of identity, when things are really starting to change, where you know the career path is not necessarily paving out like it was supposed to, that was intended to, and and there are other. That's definitely the case for me in realizing, okay, there's a void, and. Often in times of void, if there's not a s- solid foundation of connection to a higher power, then that void can be very dark. Now you're getting the nuts and bolts of it. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it was from the time I, I quit jockeying. Um, I worked in the industry then for a, a number of years after that as a track rider. Um, you know, I was, I was very much... Um, appreciated for the skills I'd attained and my ability to work with troubled horses. And what I discovered about that, horses don't have horse problems, they have human problems, Mm. you know. And so I learned a lot from them um, really about how to relate with people. Um, You know, there was a a long period of time and I talked to this guy once and he he described me as, um, uh, you know, body language illiterate and um, emotionally autistic. And that's how I felt. And and years later when, when you know, my world had fallen apart and, and there was no rock bottom for me per se. You know, people find a rock bottom and then they, they find a solution. I hit rock bottom a long time and I just bounced along the bottom, you know, with occasional little ups and downs. But I, I really was on the bottom for a long time. And I had an assemblance of, you know, I had a, a fallback, which was mental illness, and I've been diagnosed with you know, a handful of different things. And, and, and you know, I don't like labels because they can restrict you in, in how you want to step out into life. And, um, but there is definitely prevalence in, in certain conditions that I have that I have to constantly be mindful. And one is staying sober, you know, and not drinking, you know, and I've done that now for over 15 years. Congratulations. Yeah, cheers, bro. Um, you know, and it's... The, the adulation or congratulations, most people don't, you know, have to go to a program to learn how to save their own life. It's natural. <laughs> you know, me, I, I needed a bit of help. And, and I had tried to manage and control my drinking for, for years. Well, just, just to kind of butt in there, I think yeah. that's a really honourable decision to make that most people struggle to even come sure. to that first point to recognise yeah. that shit, like, I need some help here in this moment. And then it, that, that's the kind of the starting point of the journey in the opposite direction, you know? Yeah. And um, ha- roughly how long did it take you to get to that point? Well, I first went looking for help for my drinking when I was 26. Okay. You know, I'd had a mental breakdown and I ended up in a locked ward at, at 
Winston Noble unit in, in Chermside. You know, and I was, I was one who flew over the Crookles Nest, you know. Wow. <laughs> I, was, I was planning scapes and everything. Yeah. And um, Have you got any stories from there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on, let's hear one. Well, so I was, I was in there and um, I think the first couple of days was a blur and, like, my mother took me there and, and, and booked me in and the, the next day when she came back, I was just drooling in a chair and they'd given me Haldol and they give me all these drugs and just I was just... Sedation. Just sedation. Wow. I'm like this... And I, I don't remember that. Yeah, well. That's that's my mother telling me. And and then sort of that abated and, yeah, there was, you know, I'm in there with nutcases and they seemed a whole lot worse than me. <laughs> and um, But, no, I planned an escape. Nice. And, um, you know, in the end, you know, there was... You know, air conditioning ducts and whatever else, and I said, get through there. Da, da, da. Get in the air conduct. Yeah, I can get in there, and and I planned an escape, but I thought, oh, they'll just catch me anyway. You know, it was kind of slowly getting defeated. Um, you know, my head was saying some really wacky stuff, and um, yeah, so I'm in there, and these two young blokes came in, and they they worked out the escape. I didn't tell them, but they worked out the escape plan too. They got out. And they got to like the eaves of the building and they fell through the eaves Whoa. right in front of a security guard. No way. <laughs> One got away. They caught him Just around ran the block. Off. And oh the other God. bloke, the security guard, grabbed him and it's like, you know, oh. that would have been me and it wouldn't have helped my cause any. And yeah. I've had a couple of admissions in, in hospital. Um, and and the diagnosis is, and the problem with the diagnosis is that I was hard to convince. You know, and, and yes, I, I held a lot of the symptoms of those conditions, but I just didn't feel 100%. And actually it wasn't until, geez, years later. So that was at 26. Um, oh no, so that was a, at about 22 or 3, and then I had a couple of years and, I, and I'd set myself a goal to come back to, to, ra- to racing, racing wow. when I was 25. Nice. And I had this little hiccup and, and I didn't make that. On my 25th birthday, I was sitting alone drinking, you know, and feeling sorry for myself. I didn't make it. Mm-hmm. And I did by the time I was 26. November, um, by the next year, November, you know, I left the Gold Coast, went north, central Queensland, and I, and I got back, you know. And, you know, there was no great – I was, um, you know, a, a very good rider and I didn't have to work as hard up there to – because I had an excess of ability and, you know, I'd be drinking all week, I'd turn up Saturday and ride winners and that was okay as far as it went. But, um, yeah, and during that time I'd gotten married and had a child. Um, I'd owned, I owned seven houses by then as well because I used all, once upon a time our money used to be held in trust mm-hmm. as, a, as an apprentice jockey and you would give it, get it when you were finished. So when I um, got out of that the first time, um, I had this money. But I, I knew I had learnt by that stage by other people that, you know, were um, had um, a lot of ability ability in racing and apprentice. And, and we'd point out, oh, that bloke used to be able to ride. He was a good rider. He was a good apprentice, but he's big now. Da, da. Why is he driving an old Commodore? Ah, oh, he blew all his money. Went, ah, oh, I won't do that. And so, you know, all that money I put away, most of it, and 
um, invest in the house with my sister, and that that's the real estate conversation. Yeah, but that's when it started for me. Smart move to invest early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, you know, in in hindsight, you know, a lot of people do that for tax benefits. Sure. I never earned a lot enough money to get the, you know, the negatively gearing benefits from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when it all washes up for the years that that you know my sister and myself were basically in business together. I would have been better off buying one else and I would have owned it way quicker without all the, the headaches. Because we went through, um, I think, two um, recessions during that time, you know, in that 20-year period. You know, so from an early, like by the time I was 20-something, I was very aware of what was going on mm. in the financial markets. And even today, like, it's an interest for me. Mm. I'm interested in... Um, uh, economics. I'm interested in how things play off each, play off each other, and because mm-hmm. that has a refle- direct reflection onto me. Mm. Um, and a lot of that isn't given to us in what we'd call mainstream media. Um, Absolutely, yeah, no, yeah. I totally agree. And or school for that matter. Like we 100%. weren't, we learn nothing mm-hmm. really that is going to help an entrepreneur be successful in life. They're coding a little bit now. You know, they. Teach sure. kids to code and stuff, but they're not still not teaching children how to deal with banks, interest rates, mm-hmm. those sort of things. And so we're not gearing up our kids uh, like we would probably like them to. Yeah. Sure. And that's the benefit of this program is that this is an uncensored outside of the mainstream and we're intending to, you know, share these stories to inspire and also educate is a key part. And, you know, let's just go down that rabbit hole a little bit. Do you think these, you know, greater systems that are in place right now, as you said, they're not taught in our schools, they're um, not really shared educational for the greater good of the people and the masses. Do you think that's done by design? Well, it originally was. So when the, the um, industrial age began, they just needed people to operate machinery. Yeah. Yeah. And so they, they took all these people who were perhaps working on farms. They, they lived a life prior to that. Mm-hmm. You know, people had jobs, horses. They had jobs as uh, building, you know, carts or what do they call them uh, in the railways? Coachmen. Yeah. You know, so they were coachmen. They were building things. And so, you know, there was stonemasons. There were all these industries outside of prior to that. So they just had to educate these people to operate in an assembly line machinery mm-hmm. and it the education system hasn't really grown since then no. you know and that, that's not even a new idea yeah, if you spoke sure. to anybody you know from for as long as I can remember I've heard people saying I have never used algebra in my life <laughs> you know that was a waste of time and and I've heard it since I went to school my daughter said the same thing yeah you know and so um and and that, look, that's a benefit of, of at least private schooling. I sent my daughter to private school. It was the cheapest one I could find. But it gives parents some sort of say over the direction of their education. Mm. You know, that's the benefits um, of private schooling. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you kind of mentioned there, like, you're obviously uh, having a business with your sister in the property uh, market and industry and, and kind of making it through succession of recessions, multiple recessions there. What are your thoughts on the current state of the economic situation in our day and age? Uh, you know, are we in a recession? How bad is it going to be? 
what are some opportunities having experienced it from the past that you know you can use your experience now to be able to leverage that experience to navigate through this recession what kind of opportunities do you see for the everyday person what would be um you know some some points of advice that you'd offer well the definition of a recession is two two years of, of negative growth and so example i think the states have had three yeah and so we whether we like it or not the main thing we have in australia is we have a lot of natural minerals you know um coal gold copper so we have the lot really yeah um so we're insulated in a way from what is necessarily happening because we have a multiple um you know supermarkets as in markets where we sell to you know and china is one china's our biggest customer um yeah but you know the fact is with the amount we are in a recession like i, I don't think anybody else could to, could really say, you know, if you look at fuel prices, um, I think we've got um, 15%, you know, somewhere between, you know, they're saying we've got 6% inflation. That's not true. Mm. Ask anybody else who's going shopping every week, do you think there's, things have gone up just 5%? No, they haven't. Mm. You know, there's a, a flow-on effect. And yeah. it's always interesting to go down deeper that rabbit hole and how they get these numbers and they're constantly kind of changing the goalpost on how they equate the percentages of inflation based on, you know, what the household is purchasing, for example, and then they kind of change the items and it's constantly kind of changing. To Do you think they're doing that to keep the population in some sense of certainty or without kind of rattling the cages too much? Yeah, they... They use a couple of tools, and one is fear. You know, one is is and and fear is the best one. You know, a fear of something else, um, and so that makes us more compliant. It puts us into a, a state of you know to fight or flight, and so um, we're much easier. And and we saw that in the last few years, which I don't know whether we'll get to that, but you know where. Um, you know, put it, people are put in a state of fear and they become compliant. And they'll, they'll allow their freedoms to be taken away. And, you know, we, I've seen it over the years and I've got certain opinions about um, certain laws they've made to take freedoms away from certain elements of our, our society. One is bikies. But if you take freedoms away from one group, then... You have to do it with everyone, surely. Well, it, then it, there's a trickle-on effect. And, and they, they... Eventually. With what the, the Liberal Party did for years with the, you know, the cash card and, and things like that. And, you know, they put it in these certain areas to potentially put it on everybody. Yeah. And, and we're okay with it, doing it to those people over there. Mm. You know, ah, oh, they're fine. We can do it to those people over there and we're all okay with that. And then it slowly gets closer to me and then, you know... By that point, it's too late. It's too late. They've already, you know, they've already got... Are you speaking directly to digital IDs? Um, digital currency? They tried to introduce that um, oh, 20 years ago with the Australian card. I think John Howard tried that. Um, and, you know, that was screamed out. But since then, we've all become a little bit more compliant, you know, and there's a long time, you know, that's saying that, um, you know, difficult times create hard men, hard men to create good times, good times create soft men, 
soft men create hard times. And we're in that period now where, you know, things have been easy for a while. Too many soft men out there. Too many soft men out there. Um, you know, so, yeah. And what would you suggest constitute a hard man? Oh, look, I, I'm a fan of Jordan Peterson and, and his... Me too. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the the warrior who, who learns to to basically keep a lid on that, you know, and have the ability to harm people but doesn't, mm. you know. Huge responsibility. Huge responsibility, but it's important. You know, I, you know, if I'm walking with my wife and, you know, I'm always on alert. If, I, if I'm walking with my family, I'm always on alert. You know, it's just how I grew up and, you know, you take care of the people around you. I totally agree and I think that's such a really big significant point to kind of bring us back to where we were in your story. We kind of took a segue there and I think it's very relevant though because we're talking here about this kind of rite of passage for for men mm-hmm. to go through from boyhood into manhood and often that if it's not done intentionally as it has been designed through ancient cultures who still practice some sense of a rite of passage for young boys to realise the responsibility of, a, of being a man, as you mentioned, you know, that we have this power to be able to create, you know, kill people if we needed to. Um, but the, the responsibility and the awareness is that we're, we're only doing that at a very last decision, desire or, or to protect our family yeah. and so forth. So in your story, it seems that you've kind of taken yourself on a rite of passage journey, particularly from the the journey of uh, um, being a jockey and then also, you know, finding yourself in these unique situations where you're uh, trying to overcome these mental health challenges. Yeah. What, what, what was the kind of um, breakthrough moment for you to come through that and, and begin, you know, as you mentioned, you were kind of bobbling along the bottom in the, the, the hard times. What gave you that springboard bounce to, you know, get you to where you are today? you know, 15 years sober uh, with a wife and so forth. Sure. But just on, on the last part we're talking about is, you know, and I learned this, I think, the, the book The Road Less Travelled and talks about the, the balance between nurture and a real man has the balance between nurturer and protector. Mm. You know, my daughter loves me dearly, but she's very safe around me. You know, I was a whisperer, not a yeller. You know, stern voice, soft hand. And, you know, that's how I raised her and... You know, I'm her number one person in life and I'm very proud of that. And, you know, I, um, getting on to the next thing you were saying. Yeah, I'm curious just to go back a little bit because you shared that story when you were in the um, hospitals trying to escape. <laughs> Funny story. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes in those moments the mind can be somewhat radical and it's, Mm-hmm. ideas and imagination and, and things that could constitute an action as well because it's one thing to think a thought but it's another thing to put it into place and action it, yeah. which you witnessed these guys do, ended up getting in trouble. And w- w- at that point you're looking to escape, literally. Yeah. Literally escape out of the hospital, perhaps escape out of your situation, escape out of your um, you know, your life perhaps. I'm not really quite sure but that was my story when I was drinking a lot of alcohol and taking drugs. I'm trying to escape. The feelings, ultimately, yeah. the, the denser feelings and um, ultimately numbing them. What was it that kind of brought you back to feeling the feelings that were necessary to feel? <laughs> well, you know, that's... Uh, 
you know, I, I spent years and, and I wasn't um, without participation in my life. You know, I, I was kind of in a, you know, an out-of-control bus and I'm trying to grab the steering wheel. I just didn't know how. I didn't have the, you know, I taught living skills by people who were taught shit living skills. You know, I was taught relationship skills from people who, you know, when I challenged my, my stepdad on, on how we were treated when we were kids, it, it was the best answer because I challenged everybody in my family. You know, how, if you love me, how could you treat me in that way? And it's like, it, the best answer I got, and it was from him, we didn't know any better. That's just how they were raised, you know. Um, you know, my father was a product of the Second World War. Uh, you know, he, he, he never met his own father, my grandfather, till he was five years old. So they never got to built to build a relationship. And so I, I've, I've, you know, the path involves all that, you know. And I heard so somewhere that, you know, if you want to know where you come from, find out where your people come from. Find out, find out what happened to them and it will give you a better understanding of how, how you found yourself in this you know, my father had an estranged relationship with his father. Now, we took a loaf of bread every Sunday to my grandparents' place. He tried to be the good son, just couldn't be. He never had that, that you know, that connected relationship with his father, whereas my uncle did, who came five years after that. So there's 10 years of difference. And I learnt when, when I became a parent, I've never loved anything so much in my life. But I didn't love my daughter when she was born. There was an instinct for protection, and I absolutely felt that. But the love, you know, from a father to his children, they, a father falls in love with his children. And my, my, my father never had that, that privilege, nor did my grandfather with him. You know? So that's an effect that I have from the Second World War. That my grandfather was away for five years. Never spoke about it, but we know what happened. You know, it wasn't nice and so he was a damaged man who came back from war and then tried to assimilate back into life and build relationships with his wife, my grandmother and his children or his child at that time and, you know, so I understand what happened there. And so that was part of my journey as well, understanding what happened to me, what, 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 what makes me up. And so, you know, and my mother's got her own story, you know, like, there's no, and, then, and there's no blame in any of this. It's the best advice I got from a psychologist or a counsellor that I went to, um, which is a funny story in itself. He ended up having a, a nervous breakdown because of my mother and him in his wow. room. That's a hilarious story. Let's hear it. Well, so, so my wife had left me years ago and, um, you know, I, I was in a mess and I was, you know, once I was participating in my own life. I was trying to right the ship. And, you know, I went to see this guy and I was going to see him regularly and, um, you know, things were getting good, you know. I, I was okay with having had my wife leave and I, I was getting, you know, my career back on track and I was riding winners. I was freaking killing it, to be honest, yeah. And, and then, you know, I had an incident with my mother and I told her to get out of my house and never come back. I spoke to my counsellor. He said, oh, look, we'll try and sort this out. And it's like, oh, okay. And so we go, both go to his, his office and, and my mother goes in first and talks and, and he comes out, then it's my turn to have a chat to him and he convinces me that I'm wrong. You know, my mother's swayed in. It's like, okay, and I was prepared to accept that and it's like, how, how do we work out of this now, yeah? And so then he gets my mother and myself in the same room 
And it started. And, you know, he saw what the nature of that relationship was. In the end, he couldn't stop us. I was defending. She was attacking. She was boxing me in the corners, like where I couldn't, wasn't giving any options other than what she thought I should be doing with my life or a fax machine, you know. And, you know, people don't... And so, you know, he ends up slapping his chair on the ground, hands on the ground. Trying to stop you guys. Just stop, stop, stop. Uh, right. And shortly after, he had a nervous breakdown. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, but even in all that, like, my mother became the person she became out of necessity. Yeah, so she's got her own story, you know. And and that guy, when, when I talked about this stuff, he said, this isn't about blame. And it's not. Because everybody has their own story. You know, I've arrived at the age I am now um, and... I've had things happen in my life and, and you can have and, – and being a member of AA, I don't know if we mentioned that, but, you know, being a, a member of AA, you see that the best intention – the best intention people can do some shitty things, you know, and, and life can happen to us, you know, and part of the, living the whole spiritual life and the, the Wayne Dwyer's and Louis Hayes, it's, it's really about – Starting to direct your own life and, and taking responsibility and you know you know Jordan Peterson Andrew Tate Joe Rogan all these people as well as the Lou Hayes and, and Wayne Dwyer's and um, Deb Shapiro's and all the people I've gathered in to to help myself grow are all saying the same thing. There's one message and, and part of that is you know there's certain elements of living a good sp- spiritual life and I found that in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I, I was also given permission to believe in God the way I always had. I just, you know, I'm agnostic, but I pray to God, you know. And, and you know, the difference between an atheist, atheist says, no, nah, no way. An ag- agnostic says, eh, could be, don't know what it is, but, you know, yeah, all right. And, and I'm that guy. I'm a theosophist, really. And that means I gather in all these different beliefs or understandings, and that includes religious ideas, philosophy from all around. And, you know, out of the middle of that is my concept of God that I have a, a personal relationship to. Now, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, you know, he was a church-going man and, you know, he was helped by church-going people. However, he lacked a personal relationship with something greater than himself. Yeah, and so I think that's an integral part of all our lives is to have, you know, inside, you know, the heart of every woman and child is a deeper understanding of God, you know, because it's a feeling thing. Yeah. Absolutely agree. And I've loved how you've touched on, you know, these deeper existential questions that ultimately I feel all human beings have to contemplate in their life, such as who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? What's my purpose? And exploring your your own journey of what brought you here to this moment and just acknowledging, you know, your father's journey and your grandfather's journey. And you kind of touched on this point that we, you know, hard men come out of hard circumstances and mm. soft men are come out of, you know, easy circumstances of life. And we've lived in this period where I've been extremely fortunate and I would say I'm probably more likely in that soft man category because I've had a very fortunate upbringing, been very privileged in, in a lot of ma- in a lot of uh, respects and we're coming into this era where we're faced with a lot of challenges in the world right now, particularly, you know, the war in Europe right now which seems to be escalating quicker than 
the news is really telling us and, you know, a lot of other s- situations where the, most people have probably got their head in the sand around the current circumstances and although it may not be that present in our society, it seems that there are a lot, lot of larger conglomerates of corporations that are coming together to seek more centralised control, yet the everyday people are still kind of carrying on with this life as normal situation. So what, what, what do you see coming, particularly as you mentioned, your grandfather coming from a post-war era and us potentially heading into a, you know, well, we currently are in an era of war. What, what hope do we have for people to have this connection with some sense of higher intelligence or God, as you'd mentioned, to be able to find peace on earth moving forward? rather than this conflicting state of being and, and mind that we often have mostly with ourselves. You know, we, we, we can be torn between fighting the internal battle of, you know, uh, material consumption as opposed to what, what I've witnessed you do in your life and, and being uh, humbled to serve the community at large. So what is it going to take for us? That's a big question, bro. Like... Solving the world's problems yeah. in this podcast tonight, <laughs> mate. <laughs> oh, look, so I had a – so earlier on in, you know, my, my life um, from a, the point I got sober, my reflection point is periods in my recovery. Yeah? And so I went and did Vipassana meditation at about – I don't know, I was about five years sober and it was my natural progression. I'd learned a lot of spiritual stuff. Have you got any stories from your Vipassana? I've got a great one, but it was hell on earth, to be honest. Okay. Um, but coming out of that, I, I can bring us back to the point. I'll tell the story. Sure. So I go to Vipassana meditation and and I'd had a number of friends who, who did it also. And at the time I had a – I was building a little cottage on a property I owned up at Pejester and I was using, you know, second – or, you know, cheap – fiberglass insulation to insulate it all and I'm rolling tear cutting it and rolling up bloody glass fibers everywhere. And so in the van that I had at the time I, I got my washing basket full of my doona and all my sheets and all my clothes and everything and I'm going to Vipassana meditation. That's all good. Along the way it tips over in the back of the van. I didn't think any of it. So I, I get there and we have a meet and greet and then, you know, it's silence and that's silence for the next 10, 10 days, and um, so I make my bed and everything's fine, and it's like, so then our, our, our meditation starts, and you do 11 hours meditation per day for, for 10 days, yeah? And um, so we're asked to listen for, you know, sen- feel for sensation and respira- you know, respiration and sensation, respiration sensation, and you sit there doing anapana and so actually you're feeling the sensation in your nose or whatever just the air in and out in and out and out for days there is a purpose for it but as an older student i also can't talk about my revelations from it either because it's about allowing other people if if people choose to do vipassana it's about because the mind works stuff out yeah and so it's goal orientated it's really just a computer you know that sets out to solve tasks doesn't actually do anything of any great value. The deeper stuff comes from the soul, comes from in, within us, yeah? It's another place. And um, 
yeah, and so I'm making my bed, and day one I'm in bed and I'm scratching, and so, and it took me like three days, and you know, sitting still, I didn't realize how tiring sitting still is for eleven hours a day. Painful too. It's painful, bro. I got an old body. Yeah, I was a professional athlete. You can understand your knees are blown. Yeah, and so sitting there cross-legged, such a painful experience. And so I was having this difficult time and I was getting really worn out. And it was day three I realised what had happened. And I'm not a, another problem is I'm not a quitter, you know. And so if I start something, I see it through. And so then I, I wash all my clothes and I've got my sheets out on the line. I'm picking fibres of glass off it, you know, wool fibres off it. And I sit there during my time off between my meditations, like I've got to do some housekeeping, yeah, picking all that up. And I was worn out. And I think on day five, the manager uh, came to me and asked me, I said, are you all right? Because he thought, I spoke to him after and he thought I was on the way out, yeah. So he just came and checked in on me. I said, well, I'm here for another fucking five days. I guess I'll have to be all right, yeah. And so that was it. So... And the way I looked at that, I, and it was like, I guess it just has to be harder for me, for me to get it, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm just a, a, I can go be a bit headstrong when I start something and I just go, you know, and I go through it and that's a good quality of my personality, yeah. I wouldn't have achieved some of the things, especially with my, my horse racing career, I wouldn't have achieved something if I just couldn't keep on the grind, yeah. He was a professional sportsman and... I disagree with, you know, you've got to have a bit of bastard in you to be a, a high-level sportsman, yeah, and a bit of mongrel helps, and I think you've Absolutely. got a bit of that in you. Yeah, thanks, so, mate. I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, yeah, Thank I'll, you. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll be in the ditches next year. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. man. Yeah. No, I see that in you. Definitely, um, you know, got that fighting spirit, and I'm curious, you know, in that story leading on to my next question because – and it's quite a deep philosophical question as well as a, you know, a psychological question that's been asked for eons. But when you, when you see that reflection of that, the story of, you know, the fiberglass getting caught in your clothes and then, you know, that would have caused a serious irritation trying to sit still in meditation, mm. itching, scratching, you would have been wanting to move and the whole idea of the meditation is to sit in stillness without moving control the mind controlling the mind over yeah, yeah. the body right yeah because the body tends to when we're stuck in the pain body lead the mind and takes control it's like trying to sit down and practice a 10 minute meditation and then two minutes in you f i find myself getting up and walking about and it's like, hang on a second didn't i just tell myself i was going to meditate but the programming and the default mechanism just gets up and moves out of a distraction of something but the yeah. practice to come back into the mind to take to master and take control of the direction of the body is a really powerful practice. And I guess my question around the situation, do you think that are we, you know, it could have been a coincidence, let's say, that you were tested to a whole nother level in the Vipassana. Mm -hmm. Or on the opposite end of the spectrum, do you think that had happened for a deeper meaning and deeper purpose? Was that by design? Yes and no. You know, it's the duality of it all, you know. What was the outcome? Well, the outcome is that, you know, I didn't quit. You know, faced with, with, with ample opportunities and, and, you know, 
great excuses, all my stuff got all covered. I had a mate who did it. He lasted 17 hours. <laughs> and he quit. <laughs> he, he quit, yeah. And, um, you know, and so I've, I've got that bastard determination in me. And so as far as the, the greater meaning of life or whatever, I think, you know, I read a book once called um, um, Coincidences and Synchronicity. And the reason I read the book, on, on a page I flicked through, I saw they talked about Dr Carl Jung. And so Jung had a different... So Jung and, and Freud were, um, of, you know, I think Jung was a, a student of Freud and then he went on a, in a different path and it's east and west, yeah. And uh, Jung believed that, you know, he termed the frame synchronicity. In other words, everything is happening and it is, everything is connected to everything else, you know. And if you look at our solar system... Everything is connected. You know, we're in the orbit of a sun and, and everything has to be perfect. If the, the volume of the sun diminishes at all, we go flying out that way and we set a different orbit, yeah? And then this planet couldn't sustain life, you know? Or if the, the, the sun gains mass, we get sucked into it, you know? And so everything is connected. If we looked on, on you know, vibrational energy, laws of attraction well um all that stuff just says that it's we're all connected this this and this is all made out of the same thing except it's just vibrating at different frequencies um you know which i know you're you understand and and so understanding that concept there is no um me and that it's all one uh, and and scriptures talk about that, like at least some of my understanding of some of them talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really profound point that you make and it seems so kind of aloof and intangible, particularly if I was – someone was to say that to me, you know, when I was in my 20s and very physical sportsman, how did – the journey of AA gets you to this point now where you can really comprehend and see and grasp this concept that everything is interconnected, all of life. Firstly, it started off with desperation, you know, and to even, I guess, before, like I was always desperate for my life to be better. I just didn't know how to do it. Like I said, I'd, I'd been in the mental health system. I'd been successful in areas of my life, um, you know, by the time I was 27, I owned seven houses, you know. So there was aspects of my life viewed from outside that could say, well, it's all happening. Looks good. Looks good. But me in it, I don't know, I'm a Capricorn, so things just happen for me, you know. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I digress and I forgot the question you asked. I was just curious in your journey with AA. You oh, know, yeah, being so... Being 15 years sober and... Yeah, so the truth was... When the last relationship finished, like all the other relationships finished, you know, all the toys were gone, the house, you know, every, everything was gone again. And um, I couldn't believe the things my head was saying to me anymore. It was no longer their fault. Mm. It, was, it was nobody else's fault. You know, there was one con common denominator in all my troubles and that was me. The circumstances were different. The situations were different. The relationships were different. It was a blonde or a brunette, 
you know, it didn't matter, you know, or as a work, you know, if they wouldn't have done it. It just didn't hold any weight for me anymore. I couldn't believe because my head lies to me, you know. It can't make sense of certain things. And so, um, you know, and I went to a psychologist and the psychologist, you know, after a few visits, it's like, oh, yeah, drinking might be a problem, you know. But I had all this mental health to back me up. Yeah, so I could always refer back to, oh, you know, this is why, you know, what I really suffered from was from extreme self-centeredness. Mm. Yeah, and so um, and she, in the end, bless her, she said, I can't help you. Right. And it was the most powerful thing and, her, her, you know, her lack of ego in that situation. It's like, I don't think I can help you. So she gave me a white piece of paper had a lifeline on it, and you know, for community health. And one and AA's number was there. That's how I got into AA. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about it when I was. And I said earlier into the in in the podcast that, that I went looking for help at twenty six, and I did. I found a, a church run group at the Gold Coast, um, namely because when the wheelie bins were emptied in the morning, all you could hear was glass on a Tuesday morning filling the the bin. It was kind of like it was really a, a poignant way to say, hang on, there's something going wrong here. Like, I don't hear anybody else's bins making that noise because it's just full of glass. And so I went for help and, you know, they said it, somebody said to me there and, and I was helpful f- to others there and I got some some peace but, you know, somebody there said, oh, it takes a, a, a month for every dysfunctional year of your life to, to sort of get better and it's like, Man, that's 26 months. I don't have that time. I've got to keep moving, you know, because I'd already missed my, you know, my 25th birthday promise to myself. And so I had to get moving and um, I didn't find AA or I didn't really know about it either until I was 38. I'll tell you what, from the time I was 26, a whole lot of shit happened by the time I was 38, Mm -hmm. you know. I, I only wish, but that just wasn't my path. You know, I only wish that I would have found out AA then and I would have been all in. At 38, I was all in. You know, Not at the start. I gave it 30 days. I gave it a trial because I, I, in that – but also in that period, I'd been to church, a number of different churches, and, you know, taking a, a disabled mate to, of mine to church every Sunday and ha- part of connect groups and – having deacons pray for us and stuff and all I ever asked for, people asking for cars and, you know, a, a pay rise and all these things to get prayed for them for the week. I said, I just want to be a better man. Mm-hmm. That's all I want. I just want to be a better man. If I'm a better man, everything else will be okay. Mm-hmm. If I'm a better man, my financial future will be okay. If I'm a better man, my relationships will be okay. If I'm a better man, that's all I ever wanted. That's all I want today. I want to be a better man tomorrow than I am today. That's all I want. And I think that's honourable. Absolutely. I think it's decent and honourable. And that's something I can be proud of in myself. Like I don't need adulation for that or praise because I think it's it's just right. I think it, it's what all of us men should be doing, mm-hmm. you know. You know, I, I think, and it's a whole other topic, I think we've copped a hard deal of it for a long time now, you know, and I think the pendulums, you know, swing in back into a more equilibrium place like, you know, I hope, um, and I, that's my my. Um, you know, I see that happening, and I think I see that moving forward now. That you know, that pendulum is is swinging back to a more kind society. There's men being shamed for being men, 
and, and displaying our natural traits, um, you know, wait till the war comes. You'll want us all at the front line. You know? Oh, for sure. And I don't, think, I don't think the war in Ukraine is going to get back onto the other thing. I don't think the war in Ukraine is going to go into... Um, nuclear warfare. Nuclear warfare. But, yeah. you know, you can, you can see what's happening now, see where it started, and it started with the US expanding NATO, broke promises... You know, they made promises with Gorbachev when the Iron Curtain came down. They signed promises, yeah, and they broke every single one with successive presidents. And so this isn't a Vladimir Putin problem, yeah. This is a US problem, you know. And you said before that, you know, we've been in a period of peacetime. There's been wars on this planet. At least America has been involved in them for 260 years. Yeah. They haven't had any peace, you know, they've been in one conflict or another, and if they're not, the, the CIA is interfering in other people's politics, overthrowing government. You know, the Middle East is a disaster. You know, South America is a disaster. And it's all because they've got their fingers in the pie. However, <laughs> I still want them on my side. You know, we need them as a country. Um, you know, we're a population of 26 million, and, you know, we got, you know... 126 people in, you know. Probably very low security nation. I mean, it's a massive country. Navy's yeah. not that strong. We're somewhat vulnerable. So somewhat. <laughs> we need Big Brother yeah. to help us out. I sure. just don't, you know, I think Big Brother's a bit of a bully. Yeah. Yeah. Well. And so, you know, but um, I don't know where it goes. But I also realised I went camping at the weekend where there's no phone service and I had a conversation with somebody It's like, how would I be... You know, because we've both been to third world countries where people are joyously, you know, sitting in the dirt, joyously. And because they don't have access to this information that we do. And I'm constantly, you know, in politics. I'm constantly worried about looking at the finances, things and watching podcasts on finance and, and political... Um, and it's, there's a lot of fear out there, you know, huge. hyperinflation, you know, rising interest rates, a lot of concern. How do you transmute that deeper, darker emotion of fear and then bring it back to love so that you can show up for your relationships? So after my first Vipassana, one of the managers there, like this dude was quite skinny, but he was a hard guy. He was an ex-drug drug dealer that, that basically couldn't do it anymore. His, his life had changed where he couldn't do that anymore. And he's quite a hard man and, like, you know, he's gone from doing that to, to doing Vipassana and, and, you know, trying living his life by spiritual principles. Well, he showed me the DVD, the, gave me the DVD of Zeitgeist. Oh, yeah. And the film. The film. No, that was one of my um, catalyzing films to... Take me on a journey Dude. of awakening. <laughs> Holy. Dude, like, and, and at that stage I thought I was quite worldly and understood things, but I had no idea. I just want to make a quick plug for Earth Heroes TV. You can actually go and watch uh, Zeitgeist and the follow-up Zeitgeist on Earth Heroes TV. Highly recommend it. A whole variety of must watch. Yeah. documentaries. Yeah, Very yeah. much a must-watch. Yeah. yeah, if you want your, your eyes open, um, it's the thing to watch. And I watched that and I, I after what I, – now I've watched that. Dozens of times, yeah. When I get something, I, I you know, that's how I learn, you know. I'm, I think they call it kinetic, kinetic learning. So I listen to audio tapes and as much as I can. 
to learn that stuff. And, yeah, watching that, I, I was in shock for two weeks. It's like I'm wandering around like, what do I do? Who like, am I? Who, what do I do? Like, <laughs> yeah. how, like this is horrible. What yeah. do I do? And I realised and I, I, you know, an observer of history and not a, a scholar by any means, but I went back to the 60s when they were protesting the Vietnam War and the Korean War and all those. I went, where did they go? Well, they're running things now. And I went, how could they justify that? Yeah? And I realised that at some point they obviously saw it was too big for them. Hmm. And so... You know, I didn't have any um, real encouragement from what I saw, at least my evaluation of what I saw in, in recent history. And I went, well, what do I do? And it's like, well, I have to maintain, you know, there's a system there and, you know, I'm in it. I've got to live in it. But, you know, and I can't change – I can't necessarily change the system. And, you know, we went to Canberra, we marched – you know, we drove two days to get to Canberra over the, the lockdowns and, and stuff and stuff. I went because of what happened in Melbourne and how our citizens were treated in Melbourne. But that's – I digress. And so what I realised was is, um, yeah, it's like how do I – I just need to um, hold my moral values together in me, in my space. And sure, there's a ripple effect and, and by the people I bring into my life and the people I help, but I can't change that. But what I can change is what, you know, you know, God's, God works in the, the hands of men. Oh, sorry, in the hearts of men, not in their hands. And so, you know, if I'm, I'm leading with the heart, you know, and I'm, I'm helping people, and just in my little pond, I can't do anything about that. Now, I can live in fear that this is going to happen. I've seen so much of it, yeah? I want to know what's going on out there, not because I want to change. I just want to know because there's a, there's a flow-on effect on how people behave and there's a way people behave when they're in fear as well. And so it's, very, it's all very important information for me and it's great to talk about. You know, it's interesting stuff, politics. Because, you know, and, and then, look, you know, how many times have you sat down with somebody like this and gone, well, how do we, you know, by the end of it, say, well, all the problems of the world are fixed now, you know, and so I, I just think if we hold true to ourselves and our own ideals and, you know, then that's all I can do. Yeah. That's another profound gold nugget there, Wayne. Uh, you've, you've definitely shared some really great golden nuggets of wisdom throughout this conversation and just to kind of touch on that that topic, you know, when you travel to Canberra, um, part of a peaceful kind of protestant rally uh, based out of the reaction of what was going on in Melbourne where all of these officers were potentially brought in from out of state and out of country to lock people into their homes. What, what, what's your thoughts on uh, the current situation with the Queensland Police Force where they're looking to introduce out of uh, national... out of out of the country enforcement for the uh, Queensland State Police Force. I hadn't heard that. Would you like to go into that a little bit more? No, that's okay. I was just curious on your thoughts on that one. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to continue the conversation in another area because I think what's what's really beautiful about your story, Wayne, and if people do know Wayne personally, you'll know that he's uh, very 
happy to serve man. Again, just touching on what we spoke about at the beginning where um, if you've been to some of these great gatherings, which are more than just festivals, I believe, particularly the likes of Prana Fest and Grounded Gatherings, Woodford Folk Festival, this is a coming together of community, which Wayne had spoken to, this element of common union where we find that everything is interconnected and the way that we treat others is ultimately the way that we treat ourselves on an inner level and something again that I've loved witnessing you do Wayne is serve the community in ways that are very humbling and um, it's absolute honor to you know have you part of the conscious movie nights which we've been holding in Coolum Beach on the Sunshine Coast and get to know you next one next one will be in June with Tom Cronin, The Portal. Oh, nice one. Yeah. Great film, all about meditation, which we spoke about today in the Vipassana. And, you know, this sense of resilience that's required for people to overcome hardship in their life. And something that I feel you've spoken really well to today is this notion that our life is guaranteed to be faced with some level of hardship. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily how we react to it, but how we overcome those hardships. So just to round off this conversation, Wayne, is there anything that you would love to share as the last um, kind of opportunity, imagining that you're speaking to the whole country of Australia and and uh, you had an opportunity to share one message with them, what would you say? Um, well, I think just going on, on the service thing, I said I think all... All, all good spiritual lives are made up of three pillars, yeah, and that's admittance of harms done and restitution, and that could be financial or emotional or whatever, and these are also the, the fundamentals of basically Alcoholics Anonymous as well. Um, a belief in something greater than yourself, yeah, and then service to others. And I think if you can keep those three in balance, I think you can live a reasonably happy life. Because nothing brings me greater joy and lights me up is when I'm doing service for, for others. Um, you know, but to get to the place I am to be able to give service without any conditions. You know, there was a, a process earlier on in my sobriety when I, when I realised I was a, a people pleaser and... Um, you know, so then I had to work through that stuff. And people-pleasing is really um, a type of manipulation. It's not conscious. It's not a conscious thing. But, you know, I do things for people. For me, it was, you know, um, I've done these things for you. Why can't you love me? You know, or, you know, and so I would find people in, you know, be around people who were in crisis and I, I could be of service to them and they would keep me around. It's a very flawed method of... of creating friendships because when they get flying right again they have no need for you yeah and so that was the only way I knew how to base that stuff on and so I, I make no connection to anything I give I give freely you come and loan 20 bucks on me I'll say is this a gift or a loan you know and I don't hold any attachment to whether I get it back or not yeah and so if you don't give it back you don't get it again <laughs> you know and so sure. you know the, the things and so I don't have to walk into a room and feel uncomfortable you still owe me 20 bucks like, ah, it was a gift, <laughs> you know. And so, yeah, I, I don't know whether any of that changed the world. I think service is very important, you know, to serve our community, mm-hmm. um, to serve the people around us, um, you know, serve our neighbours. Um, yeah, and be kind to people. Yeah. 
beautifully said, Wayne. Thank you so much for sharing today, mate. I love these conversations that we often have. And, you know, you made the comment, I wish we could record all of our conversations that just drop in because we do have some very um, profound, as you guys would have witnessed and heard today if you were listening in and, and still with us in this moment. So big thank you, mate, for everything you did for the community as well. You know, everyone really appreciates it on a, a, a beautiful deep level and um, really excited to, you know, continue relating with you into the future and, mm. you know, building that, that community locally here on the Sunshine Coast as well where I feel perhaps it may be needed more than we can quite comprehend at this time. Yeah, a really good festival that I'm, I'm, I'm doing some work at um, is Prana Fest is coming up. I think you're doing some filming there. there as well. Yeah. yeah, so it's a really great lifestyle festival, fully sober event and... Uh, yeah, it's a really lovely. Zen Fest is another one that I'm involved in as well. Um, it's another clean, sober event as well. Uh, it's surrounded around permaculture as well, so they go to they plant trees, you know. Best and, thing. Uh, best thing. Love it. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much again, Wayne. And if you guys wanted to listen to the video recording of this it'll be available on earth heroes tv which is uh independent conscious media platform that is really created to help with the journey of awakening for human consciousness that seems to be growing and expanding exponentially in this time particularly with the race of artificial intelligence by our side or or at our eaves who knows anyway thank you so much guys and we look forward to seeing you in another episode you. Awesome, bro. I, f I feel like, man, we, 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 I don't even know what time it is. We would have gone for another hour. Yeah, <laughs> I reckon. I wonder what time it actually is. Um, it's... Yeah, 18 minutes. Okay.